You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Should American workers have to get vaccinated to go back to work? The Pfizer vaccine is now fully approved by the FDA, and the White House, including President Biden himself, is calling on American employers to mandate vaccination for private workers. Some big names, including Google and Facebook and United Airlines, are jumping on board. So are a host of hospitals and other medical treatment facilities. But not everyone is ready to comply. A host of lawsuits has been filed challenging these mandates. I'm John Donvan, and in this episode, we are revisiting a debate we recorded earlier this summer, in July, on vaccine mandates. We recorded this before the FDA gave full approval to the Pfizer vaccine, so you will hear our debaters mention that all vaccines at that time were under emergency use authorization. But the debate remains just as, or even more timely now. Let's get into it. Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan from Intelligence Squared. I want to say welcome first to Michael J. Anderson, an attorney out of Madison, Wisconsin, who has represented employees who, like those in Texas, are resisting an employer's vaccine mandate. Michael, thanks so much for joining us at Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much, John. And our other member of the group here is Professor Lawrence Gostin, who's out of Washington, D.C., a professor of law at Georgetown, who specializes in the law of public health. Larry Gostin, thank you for joining us on Intelligence Squared. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. And just a moment of full disclosure for me. Georgetown, where uh, Larry Gostin is based, is one of the schools with a vaccine mandate in place for students and faculty and staff. I want to say up front that my wife is the university's chief public health officer, and I learned only recently has collaborated with Larry Gostin. So I would just like to have that out there. Um, so on the question that we're going to be addressing, I wanted to ask you each to take a minute just to tell us how you would address the, the fundamental question that we would like to discuss, um, which is whether vaccine mandates are justified in the fight against COVID-19. Uh, and by vaccine mandate, I'm talking about in the context that we're talking about now. We're not talking about schools. We're not talking about a mandate that doesn't have the usual exceptions for medical reasons or religious reasons. But the kind of the kind of mandates that are being imposed that are making people uncomfortable in places like Houston Methodist and also the clients that uh, that Michael Anderson is representing in a case in Wisconsin. So I'll, I'll go to you first, Michael. Can you just take one minute to tell us what your position is on whether vaccine mandates are justified in the fight against COVID-19? Certainly, John, thank you for the opportunity to uh, <clears throat> explain one position on this important issue. I don't believe that mandates are the proper way to approach this. There is a way to encourage uh, vaccination, but the heavy-handed approach, I believe, does more harm than good. Where we are right now, we are clearly dealing with the emergency use authorization drugs. Everybody's familiar with these have uh, been rolled out in very rapid fashion. They're not fully FDA approved and uh, Federal uh, law uh, speaks to no one should be able to force anybody to uh, be vaccinated when we're dealing with these emergency youth authorization uh, uh, vaccines. I have clients that are very concerned about uh, pre-existing conditions. They know people who have had adverse reactions. They see others who have had uh, exemptions carved out for religious reasons. They question why from a simple constitutional reason. They simply can't object for that reason. There are a lot of employers out there that encourage uh, vaccination. I think that's a good thing. I think the carrot is a much more appropriate uh, method than the stick. And I think I've used up about my one minute. Yeah, you're, you're, you filled that minute well. I want to take the same question out of Larry Gostin. Uh, Larry, are vaccine mandates justified in the fight against COVID-19? Yes, they are. I mean, I, I believe in incentives as well, but 
mandates are justified. You know, people do have rights to make decisions about their own health and well-being, but you don't have a right to expose another person to a potentially dangerous, if not lethal, um, infection. And we know that COVID-19 is such a lethal infection. Um, So you don't have a right to go unmasked and unvaccinated in a crowded place, in a workplace, in a classroom. Uh, And uh, so I do believe that these things are justified. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has specifically said that under an emergency use authorization, businesses and universities can require vaccines. They have in the past um, with other vaccines. And I think it's entirely justified to make everybody feel safe and secure to be in an environment where um, they can be protected. All right. Thank you very much. So so what I'm hearing from both of you is a, a series of conflicting uh, agreement on the notion. I think you both believe uh, there's there's no anti-vaxxer voice in this conversation. You both believe in the uh, the, the place of vaccines in society. It sounds as though you both believe that uh, a vaccinated population, a va- population vaccinated against COVID-19 would be a good thing. You both believe that uh, positive incentives uh, are, are a way to go. Uh, where you disagree is on the mandatory uh, use, uh, mandatory requirement of these vaccines for people who, for various reasons, uh, are hesitant in the case of this particular, this particular vaccine. Um, Michael, I want to go back to you um, and you made you you made a point about these vaccines not actually being fully approved, which I I think sounds like it's the crux of the crux of your argument that the 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 reason this vaccine is, in your opinion, uh, justifiably resistible, is because it was passed as an emergency use authorization. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, historically, I think most people at least have a rudimentary understanding that uh, there are usually uh, trials that go on for years and years and years before a drug, whether it's for mental health or whatever it is, is fully rolled out because we just don't know on the front end what some of the long-term ramifications may be. Uh, yes, we are in unique times and there are times when uh, certain drugs will be given a emergency use authorization, but the government realizes that there's a opposite side of the coin there. That because there may be some adverse reactions on down the line, they take the position, and I believe law supports it, and I think it's the proper approach that because of that we can't have mandated use. Again, we can have incentive incentives for it, but mandating it, um, I don't believe it's appropriate. And also adding into that, if an employer takes the uh, blanket argument that everyone being vaccinated is uh, required, there are holes that are shot all over that because there are exemptions for religious use. For instance, a person might object to the fact that some of these drugs came through stem cell research. There's exemptions for pregnancy. So we do have people in the workplace that are not vaccinated. So that does shoot a bit of a hole in the argument that everyone there is or must be vaccinated. Okay. I I want to come back to the hole in the argument part, but for the moment, I want to stay on the issue of whether these, uh, this vaccine uh, as you argued, is is somewhat under-tested, under-examined, uh, under-trialed. Um, and I want to bring that to Larry. And one other thing, I just want to break the fourth wall. Uh, right now, I'm kind of directing the conversation, <clears throat> but I would be delighted if the two of you want to sort of just keep going back and forth with each other without my intervention. If you feel motivated to uh, to respond or break in, just please go for it. Don't wait for me to uh, to, in- to invite you into the conversation. But in this one case, Larry. So, Larry, w- what about Michael's point that um, that this thing, from the perspective of the public, went a lot faster than most vaccine development, and that that's a cause for concern on the part of a lot of people out there? Okay. Well, first of all, let's just um, deal with the emergency use authorization because that's 
if in, if indeed that was the crux of the argument, it's going to just completely melt away um, because within weeks um, the FDA is likely to give um, a full licensure um, to uh, uh, or at least the two messenger RNAs. Certainly by the end of the summer, um, when uh, universities are back. And so I think um, we've... Those those would be Pfizer and Moderna, just to... Those would be Pfizer and Moderna are the two messenger RNA vaccines. And and Johnson & Johnson will follow suit. Um, You know, this is uh, an extraordinarily well-tested vaccine, um, much more than the public realizes. Yes, it was developed very quickly because we had new technologies and that was a miracle of science, but we didn't skimp at all on the clinical trials. Um, there were tens of thousands of people in the clinical trials. There have been over two and a half billion doses globally of COVID vaccines um, given. This is one of the most safe, one of the most effective vaccines um, that we've ever had. And the public should not be under an illusion that somehow um, we've skipped corners. It's a really, really good set of vaccines. Um, And the risks of getting COVID-19, irrespective of your medical condition or your age, are much, much greater um, of you having an adverse result than these vaccines. Um, So these are highly safe, highly effective vaccines. And the regulatory agency that actually regulates the workplace has specifically said that employers can do it under an emergency use authorization. So I think that is a red herring. And we've never seen an emergency use authorization in the way we have here, because this is not, this is a a globally population-wide rollout. It's not an emergency rollout. It's a rollout based upon the entire population. There are great vaccines, and I encourage everyone to get one. It's safer for you, and it's safer for the others. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Our mission is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to join the debate and hear from both sides of every issue. More debate when we return. Introducing Bluehost Cloud ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's jump right back into our discussion. It's fine. Well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, Larry comes at it from a professorial standpoint, and I appreciate that. Maybe someday I'll be doing that. Uh, I'm coming at it from more of a lawyer standpoint. So Larry says red herring. He suggests that these uh, vaccines may, sooner rather than later, who knows, get full FDA approval. The fact of the matter is, right now, uh, they don't. I am standing on pretty comfortable ground that uh, I'm in a good place with uh, with my clients in this uh, current lawsuit. But one thing that Larry brought up, and it's an interesting discussion, I think, there's, uh, as long as the United States has been here, there's been a tension between individual liberties and the greater public good. Uh, this goes back 
you know, going on 250 years. And it's still present here. This, I think, is one of the more recent iterations of that. So I think we can recognize that there is a greater good for public as a whole to uh, vaccinate. But if we lose sight of individual liberties, which our nation is built upon, and I'm sworn to uphold the U.S. Constitution and my state's constitution and all statutes that have been enacted and all common law, I have to uh, look very closely at individual liberties. And uh, so we can talk about public policy, but we also have to talk about law as well. And how this is going to shake out in the administrative uh, regulatory uh, setting or in the courts or through additional legislation uh, in Wisconsin right now, there is uh, legislation that is, uh, has passed the uh, state assembly and state senate that would prohibit employers from mandating it. We have a Democratic governor that most likely will veto it. But this, again, goes to that tension. And how do we resolve it? Maybe there's education, but I still think, and I get back to my earlier point, that mandating it, hammering someone over the head with a stick is going to do more harm than good. I absolutely respect Michael's point of view about the um importance of individual liberties. I was actually the head of the British Civil Liberties Union, and I was on the executive committee and board of directors of the ACLU here in the U.S. So I do understand the importance of individual liberty, and I respect that enormously. Um, But we have a long tradition, both legally and ethically in the United States, that you do have individual rights yourself, but you don't have the right to expose another person uh, to a dangerous infectious disease. And, you know, you might say that other people can protect themselves, but people get vaccinated so they can protect themselves, but also to protect others. And there are many vulnerable people who can be vaccinated, but they can't mount an immune response because they're immunocompromised. Or there are um, young people or others that are unable um, to get the vaccine. And so I don't think that a civil liberties or a legal point of view, an individual does have the right to expose others to an infectious disease. And that's exactly what you would be doing if you walked into a crowded workplace um, or a crowded uh, classroom. As well, you know, in Methodist hospitals, There's a long tradition of some hospitals uh, requiring influenza vaccines, which are actually less effective um, than COVID-19 vaccines. Health workers have a special obligation to keep their patients safe. But I think what I think, Larry, that Michael is saying is that those vaccines have much more of a track record. And, you know, it's just the case that we we don't have three or five or 10 years of experience to know long-term the impact of these vaccines. That's that's just a fact. And it seems to me it's a very powerful part of his argument that we don't know long-term effects. Or or do we? Am I wrong about that? Is it predictable or something like that? It is, yes. Um, it's, a, you know, it's an extraordinarily good question. And I've, you know, I've just... Um, you know, been talking to uh, the former head of the CDC's immunization program about that. I asked that specific question because, of course, you're right. You know, we've we we've had you know oh you know two and a half billion doses of these vaccines uh, administered globally, which is more than you know most vaccines ever get, uh, and they've been very very safe. The truth is, is that we don't have long-term data, but that it's biologically implausible that we would have a long-term safety risk. And also historically with vaccines, if you're going to have a safety signal, they tend to emerge within days or weeks. It's extraordinarily unlikely that you're going to one day a year from now wake up and say, oh, wait, this has been a catastrophic safety problem. Um, We just don't have any experience of that in terms of vaccines. Um, And so all the scientific community is speaking, I think, in a single voice 
in saying that these vaccines are very safe. They're safe now and they're safe in the medium and long term. Um, and we would have to fly in the face of that and risk a very, very bad pandemic if we didn't get an extraordinarily high immunization coverage in the United States and globally. So, Michael, it sounds as though Larry is, to some degree, asking the public to trust to trust the science uh, and, and for the reassurance to come from that direction, from that impulse. Does that, would that persuade, for example, your clients? And I want to talk a little bit about the case that you, you're carrying on in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, yes, I mean, it, there is the, the broader uh, public health uh, argument. And I think a, a lot of people would agree that we should be moving in this direction. But sometimes a good message gets lost in the way it is being presented. And this, to me, is what's happening with these mandates. I believe there is a way to incentivize individuals to be vaccinated. I still think it's the wrong approach to penalize them. My clients are working class people uh, in a working class county in Wisconsin. And some of them had to make a tough decision. Do they get vaccinated even though they are opposed to it and then possibly lose their housing and not be able to feed their children. Do so they let, let, can I, take can, a layoff? Can I break in, yeah. Michael, can I, can I break in just for, for me to take 30 seconds to lay out your case as I know it, because we haven't actually told people the story. So it's, um, it's a nursing home, I believe, in uh, Jasper, Wisconsin, um, where, uh, and it's controlled by the county government, so it's not a private business, and the management required uh, vaccination you you're uh, you represented a group of people who didn't want to do this yet. They, I don't think they said never, but they said not yet, and they were told that they would be dismissed and that they would lose their jobs. And you, you brought suit, and ultimately, the uh, the county board backed down. Am I correct about that? the uh, The mandate has been lifted. The mandate has been lifted. I don't want to get down in the weeds about all the legal procedural stuff that's happened. I haven't filed suit yet. I have set the table to file suit if I need to. But uh, it's in Janesville, Wisconsin, not Jasper. It's about it's about an hour south of Madison. And uh, this is a county-run assisted living facility. But the only county employees that were uh, required to be vaccinated were the employees at uh, this facility. Interestingly enough, the correctional officers at the county-run jail were not required to be vaccinated. And from a percentage standpoint, the number of uh, correctional officers and inmates at the jail that uh, got COVID was substantially higher than those residents at the uh, facility where my clients uh, worked. Uh, I can't speak too greatly about it, but I am That's hopeful okay. I, that, we'll, that, that we'll be able to resolve this case without filing a suit, but I can't promise that. I, so I, I wanted to bring it up because I wanted to, to understand the case that you were making a minute ago, that you feel that the way that these people were presented with the choice that they had to make was part of the problem here. And and that it was in a, I think you're arguing in a sense it was coercive. Um, so I just want you to pick up from that thought now that uh, our listeners have more of a clue of what the background story is. I think it was absolutely coercive. My clients were given the option of uh, take a vaccine that they have significant doubts about or lose their income and potentially be foreclosed upon and not be able to feed their children. And to the credit of many of my clients, they stood up for what they believed in. And the day that they refused to be vaccinated, they were asked to turn in their uh, identification cards and their keys, and they were escorted off the premises. Uh, Some of them have gone back. They are now being encouraged to be vaccinated, and some of them may take it based on the encouragement. Uh, But it has been, maybe some of this is just looking at a narrow window of how the courts will address this when we are in the EAU setting. Uh, Larry's mentioned something earlier. Uh, What happens when they obtain full FDA approval? Um, We'll have to see how it shakes out, but I would agree with Larry that we are on a, uh, a different playing field at that point in time. But my job is to look at the law as it stands when my clients uh, approach to me 
And I feel very strongly in the arguments we have that uh, the county uh, violated my uh, client's rights, both uh, constitutional and per federal statute and per applicable uh, Wisconsin statutes. Larry, do you feel that there is a case of rights being violated there? Well, you know, it gives me no joy to see, you know, a working class person who is uh, is dismissed from their employment because of this. This is the last thing that I want to see um, in the United States of America. And, and, and we do need to try to be as sensitive and kind um, as we possibly can. Um, but we also remember there are rights on both sides, um, and the right of an individual not to be exposed to the infectious disease is quite considerable, and that's particularly true in high-risk environments, um, places like cruise ships, nursing homes, jails, prisons, um, where we, we've had many super-spreader events. Um, so, so if you take a nursing home, um, you know, nursing home staffs have a, a, a strong ethical responsibility to keep vulnerable uh, uh, people, residents, uh, safe and secure. Um, we should do everything we can to encourage that community to be, to be vaccinated. But in the end, if you're not vaccinated, very sadly, you are posing a risk to the elderly person that you're taking care of. And we as a society have a right and a duty to protect that person as well um, from getting an infectious disease that might kill them. Um, and if and in places like universities, cruise ships, take a business, for example, like a cruise ship. It's you know, it's one of the big issues now in Florida and other places, um, you know, they have every business incentive to try to get back to work. Customers want to feel safe. Staff want to feel safe. Um, and I know that there are many people who are, who are on the other side who feel, I don't really want to go to a workplace or a classroom um, where there are a lot of unvaccinated people, particularly if I'm immune compromised and I need to rely on others to protect me. Um, so remember, there you know there are risks on both sides and rights on both sides, but the risks are much much greater of getting COVID than they are from getting the vaccine. Getting the vaccine is an extraordinarily safe thing to do, and we have to keep underscoring that. So, so Larry, why do you think it's unfortunate that there is a that there is an element of coercion? And in the specific case that uh, where Michael's representing it, and also the case I cited at the beginning in um, in Houston, the coercion was get the vaccine or you can't work here. While you feel it's too bad that it has to come to that, you do feel that if it has to come to that, it has to come to that. I do. Um, I think if you if if it has to come to a, a question of compelling somebody or not going to a job, then I think it's a fair thing to do. Um, nobody has a right, you, you have a right to employment um, and you have a right to um, do so in a way that's fair to you, but you don't have a right to go into, an, in, in, into a workspace and expose another person to disease. I know I've said this repeatedly, but to me, you know, I've, I've worked in, not just in law, but in ethics um, my whole life. And I know as a strong ethical principle that you do have unlimited rights when it comes to your own safety, health, and welfare. Um, but you don't have a right um, to hurt other people. Um, and that's what going into a place unvaccinated, unmasked, um, can do. And it's a sad thing. I don't, you know, as I say, it gives me very little joy to want to force anybody to do anything. I'm just not that kind of person. Um, but I do believe that we are too much in America about the me, 
the I. And we have to think about the we. It's not what rights I have. It's what responsibilities I have to make my community and my work, my, my coworkers, my classmates, my, my customers, my residents safe and secure. Larry takes the position and says that, uh, and I'm not accusing him of being hyperbolic at all. I understand there is a legitimate argument on that side, but he is taking one side of this fundamental tension in the United States between individual rights and a different way of looking at it. Uh, there's a significant swath in the U.S. that forever has bristled at being told what to do. Now, you can be told to drive a certain speed limit. There's certain things that if you do them, there's going to be consequences for that. But I still look at this as an individual uh, rights uh, situation. Turning back a little bit to um, the workplace setting uh, and looking at the argument that everyone there needs to be vaccinated. And if they're not, I feel bad for them, but if they're ushered off and if they lose their jobs, that's okay. I would say there are, I mentioned this earlier, uh, there's holes in that argument. There are exemptions that are carved out for uh, religious uh, objections, for myriad other objections. So we do have people uh, at my workplace, my uh, clients, Many of them, all of them, until the vaccines came out, they were shielded. They weren't just masked. They did every precaution that they were advised to follow. And the people who are utilizing the exemptions right now are continuing to work with the shields and the masks. So if we have a class of individuals that for a separate reason, uh, object to uh, mandatory vaccination. How do I explain to them that there's other people, because they might be more religiously inclined, are able to uh, continue working? And my clients, who might have more of a constitutional streak in them, uh, are not allowed to do it. Uh, I'm a working class kid from Milwaukee, and my clients are working class kids from uh, southern Wisconsin. And uh, they see some of the holes in this, and they ask these questions. They might not ask it the way that uh, Larry does or the way I do, but they get it, and that's why they contacted me. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. You're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's return to our debate. So, Larry, just just to just to clarify what Michael's talking about is the fact that in mo- most vaccine regimes in the United States allow for exemptions for religious if people have religious objection to being vaccinated, and there are also exemptions for certain kinds of medical conditions. Sometimes there are also exemptions for pregnant women, where there is a vaccine mandate. These people who fall into these groups are given a pass. So I just want to make that clear as you take on Michael's question, you know, what's the difference between allowing those exemptions and the exemptions that are sought by his clients? Sure. That's a fair question. Um, You know, first of all, you know, vaccines um, have been um, public health uh, officials have been uh, uh, empowered constitutionally to to provide vaccines mandatorily in the United States historically. We've actually been doing it since um, the, the colonial era. And ever since then, the courts have upheld mandatory ma- vaccinations. The courts have already also said that there's no requirement um, to provide a religious or conscientious ex- exemption, you do have to provide medical exemptions. Um, and so, for example, um, the state of California um, used to have a religious exemption, um, but it was so full of holes, as, as, as Michael has said, um, that we had measles uh, clusters of cases. 
Um, and so California decided, as other states have, not to provide any religious exemptions. In terms of COVID-19, there are very few legitimate leg- religious ex- exemptions. Even the Pope has um, said that um, COVID vaccines don't violate the doctrine of the co- Catholic Church. Um, you do need to give medical exemptions, um, but medical exemptions are extraordinarily rare um, because um, these these vaccines don't really harm individuals. You may not be able to mount a good immune response to them, but they won't harm you. Um, and so religious and medical exemptions should be narrow. I absolutely agree that they should be extraordinarily narrow. Um, and, uh, uh, and they shouldn't be a loophole um, because if they are a loophole, you will be getting the kinds of results that Michael's talking about, which is unsafe conditions because too many people are uh, getting an exemption from a vaccine. So in the end, whether you use a mandate or, or, or whatever you do, there's only one overarching thing that's important. We have to make people feel and be safe. Um, and right now, vaccines are our best method of doing that. Michael, your thoughts? Vaccines have a place and individual rights also have a place. I agree with Larry that if there's exemptions and if they're not narrowly drawn enough, what's the point of it? But fundamentally, I mean, we get a lot of this, I think, is what is the role of government as a whole? I don't mean to say this pejoratively, but certain individuals view this sort of governmental reach as the as the nanny state and there's a whole slice of our public that just fights back at that notion Uh, individual liberties might really comport with what the state says but it should in a lot of ways be the individual's decision on down the line 10 15 years from now historians can look back and historians from a public health standpoint can look back and we can see how the courts have addressed it. But as of right now on the front lines, my clients and others similarly situated throughout the country, they have legitimate concerns. And I think a lot of those could be alleviated by having less of a heavy hand from the government uh, and more of uh, an encouraging collaborative approach. I think there's a way to do that. I, I know. In, I know. In the case of the people you're representing in um, uh, uh, Janesville, that in that case there is a government board involved, but private universities are doing are, are making these requirements. Private hospital systems. It's not a government sort of situation, and yet there is a compulsion, a coercion uh, issue happening there. If we use the term vaccine mandate for employment, so can you make this not about? The resistance to the government can make make this argument without bringing that aspect into the conversation. I think the same argument that you have about resistance to a governmental mandate uh, is a little bit different than if you are resisting what an employer uh, might require or what uh, an institution of higher learning might require. But a lot of the same arguments apply. I have a colleague who's son attends a private university somewhere in the United States, and that school is going toward a mandatory vaccination policy the fall of 21 for all faculty, staff, and students. There's, a, there's another private school in uh, Wisconsin near Janesville called Beloit College. They are also going in that approach. I'm pretty sure that uh, Princeton and Rutgers have looked at that. Rice has as well. How is that going to shake out? I'm not sure, but some of the same individuals who uh, you know bristle at the government saying it may have concerns about someone else doing it as well. Michael, if if the impact of the resistance to to getting vaccinated now under uh, uh, in a mandated situation, if the impact of that is that large numbers of people succeed in that resistance. And as a result of that, 
we stay farther and farther away from herd immunity than ever. What would be your position on whether the right thing had been done or not? I can see how that argument might be made. My response to that would be that if we're simply looking at what's in taking place in an employment setting, that's a very small section of all the individuals in the United States who have had the choice to be vaccinated or not. It's interesting. I'm hearing from Michael saying that the, the numbers of people who choose not to be vaccinated at this point is just not large enough to have an impact in the same way that prior vaccine regimes have been able to tolerate people saying no for, for reasons of conscientious objection, religious reasons, medical conditions, that nevertheless, there they just weren't enough of them to undermine the whole program. And my question to you is, can we, can we get by in a world without mandated vaccines? Because most people will be voluntary. A sufficient number of people will be voluntary to make the system work. Yeah, unfortunately, both of those premises, I think, are untrue. Um, the, uh, here's why. I mean, first of all, we don't have a small number of people who are not being vaccinated with COVID-19. We have quite a substantial number of people. Um, in fact, the latest polls have shown that uh, among those who are um, currently unvaccinated, um, uh, well over 40% of them say they, they, that they have no intention of being vaccinated. So I don't think we're anywhere near close to where we would need to be um, to get high enough um, vaccine coverage um, for us to get back to true normal. And the other part of it is that the premise is wrong, is, is that even in, in areas where we tend to have fairly high immunization coverage, like in measles among children or mumps or rubella or any of these childhood diseases, um, it turns out that you know, even if you have an overall population that's largely vaccinated, um, that if you will have clusters of people who will cluster together in particular areas, in either religious communities or um, in other um, uh, particular communities, that will then um, have uh, clusters of cases, breakout cases, um, and those are worrying and they can cause um, severe illnesses and deaths. And that's why many um, states around the country took some strong measures when we start, started to see clusters of childhood vaccinations. You know, we're going to be in uh, this situation with COVID for a long time until we can get um, uh, uh, not just population-wide high coverage in the United States, but also um, an ensuring that we don't have um, uh, outbreaks, clusters of, of cases that, that take place in particular communities and then spread. Um, we want to reduce the opportunity for us to have mutations and variants. We want to protect people who are unable to get vaccinated truly because they're unable to get vaccinated because they can't mount an immune response. And so our best way of protecting each other and our best way of getting back to the lives that we all yearn for, to hug people, to take off our masks, to go about our lives in a happy, joyful way, that will require us to do much more on the vaccine front. I respect what Larry's saying, but uh, a lot of what he said kind of undermines what we're talking about here today. The question, I believe, was pros, cons of mandating vaccination in the workplace. A lot of what Larry is talking about is everywhere else but the workplace. We have different states and different counties throughout the country that have had different views on masking. There are different locations where things have opened up, people argue, too quickly. Uh, if we're really looking at, and if the logical extension of this argument is do everything we can to get people to be vaccinated, uh, do we end up penalizing anybody? Do we take a portion of their tax return? Do we send municipal fines out to somebody? Because that, to me, is partially a logical extension. If we're looking at vaccinating everyone, 
Why do we mandate in a workplace when I would say that those individuals in the workplace who say no is a very small subset compared to those not in the workplace? Uh, I go to certain places and the bars are packed. Even before, certain people weren't masking. They looked at me a certain way if I, if I wore a mask. I would say those are super spreader type things. So how do we balance those two. And within that context, for me, that's where individual liberties actually come into play. You know, I don't think we should um, uh, contemplate any situation that is at high risk. And the truth is we all need to do our part, you know, and, uh, uh, and workplaces are one place where people need to be safe and vaccinated. Universities are another place. Um, and so we look at all of the settings around the country and each does its part to try to get as many of its community vaccinated as it can. And therefore, not just that place will be safer, um, but our whole country will be safer. Um, and so we, we and, and I do not, and I do agree with you, Michael, we do not want to, you know, be punitive and 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 try to criminalize this. Um, public health is never served by that. In fact, if you go back to the Jacobson versus Massachusetts case, that mandate was a five dollar fine by uh, a, a, a Cambridge, the city of Cambridge, for failing to take a smallpox uh, vaccination. Five dollars in those days was a lot of money, um, but. Nonetheless, I do I do agree that you know vaccine mandates should be done in in ways that are as encouraging as possible, as less restrictive as we can. Um, but ultimately, we do need to protect each other. We need to look out for each other as a community. We we have a couple of minutes left. So now that you've put that out there, Larry, I mean, how do you how do you make a mandate that isn't a mandate? but gets people to, you, you, you said less coercive ways, but I, the, to me, the word mandate and coercion kind of go hand in hand. But what are your thoughts about encouraging people to, <laughs> to comply with a mandate, which is not quite volunteerism, but what, what, what are some ways to do that? And, and I'd like to hear from you, Michael, because you mentioned at the very beginning, you think there are other ways. I'll step in real quick. I think there are some outside-the-box ways of looking at this. I don't recall if it was just a trial balloon from the Biden administration or if it came from Anheuser-Busch, but there was something about free beer to people who ended up uh, getting vaccinated. Some of my folks uh, would possibly get vaccinated if they got a free case of beer. So is that an incentive? Maybe it is. Yeah. Is, is that a better approach than uh, yeah. saying lose your job? I, I think I think it's creative. There are some places that get you know. I wouldn't give beer, guns, or cigarettes as a, <laughs> as an incentive for getting vaccines. But that's my my personal take on it. But I would what I would do is I would give people um, paid time off um, from work uh, or from childcare uh, responsibilities um, uh, to do it. Um, and I would most importantly um, try to develop a, a culturally and community sensitive uh, campaign of education from the bottom up um, so that re um, religious leaders, um, civic leaders, community leaders, um, were, uh, leaders in the workplace, trades union um, uh, representatives, um, all um, we're trying to put out the message that we vaccinate to protect ourselves, but also to protect our family, our coworkers, our community, our neighbors. We need to reclaim the, the, the common good in the United States and not be too focused overly on what response, what rights I have, but rather what duties and kindness that I show to keep other people safe and secure. Michael, I'll let you have the last word on that because I, I, I suspect your Larry's closing thought there did not sell you. 
Well, no, actually, it kind of did sell me because toward the end, uh, Larry talked a whole heck of a lot about incentivizing. And that, to me, seems like he was moving away from the, the mandate uh, paradigm on this. So to the extent he's changed his mind, I don't think he has. <laughs> I have really, that's fine. I I think what I would say is that th- there is common ground, and I think there is a way to approach and encourage people from whatever portion of the political spectrum they're looking at this issue on to encourage their getting vaccinated. Again, I'll circle back on mandating it, the uh, stick approach versus the carrot. I think it does no more harm than good in a lot of ways. And I've really appreciated having the opportunity today. Larry, you were just accused of changing your position, but you d- you're telling us you did not. No, I did. No, I did. <laughs> okay, not. I just want to be clear. All right, <laughs> I, I want to thank the both of you for for this conversation. Uh, I, I learned a lot. I think our listeners uh, have learned a lot, including the pros and cons of the arguments on both sides of this, and an understanding that there is a that there are reasonable ways that people can disagree on. Um, on, 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 a, on an actual conflict of rights uh, in this case, and that it's something that we're, we're going to continue to sort out. But what I very much appreciated was how the two of you continually showed respect for one another, respect for one another's intellectual positions, and also made several references to common ground. So Michael Anderson and Larry Gostin, thank you so much for joining us and for for doing it the way that you did it. So thanks to both of you. And thanks to you, John. We appreciate it. Thank you, John. Thank you, Larry. It was a pleasure. Me too. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan.